Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Food and Health Talks. I'm really excited about the conversation we'll be having today. You know, it's actually a conversation that was recorded at the Food Niche Global Health Summit. It's a panel of experts talking about the concept of food as medicine and how people can optimize their health through nutrition. Many of us may have questions. You may have heard that phrase, food as medicine over and over again, and you wonder, what does it really mean? People use it from time to time, from experts to bloggers to um, journalists. People use this term, but what does it really mean? And where did did it originate from? And how does your choice, your food choice every single day, shape your health outcomes? These experts go dive deep in this conversation, talking about the different important aspects of food and health interaction. So listen in and enjoy and learn from our panel of experts, which includes Dr. Sherry Zhang, Dr. Diana Minnick, Dr. Mariette Abrahams, Jonathan Billo, and Victor Penev. They'll be telling you briefly about themselves as they start the conversation. So take a, a few minutes and just learn and enjoy this wonderful conversation. Cheers. Hello and welcome everybody. As part of the Food Niche Global Health Summit, this session is going to explore food as medicine. We're going to take a proactive look at the future of healthcare. I'm Deanna Minnick, and I'm here with all of our panel guests. And what I'd like to do is first start off by doing introductions. So, Mariette. Thank you, Deanna, and thank you for uh, inviting me to this, this uh, expert panel. Um, so, I'm Mariette Abrams. I'm the CEO and founder of Kina, which is a niche uh, strategic innovation consultancy within personalized nutrition based in Portugal. And we really help to connect the dots uh, for consumers the industry, and also frontline healthcare professionals to make personalized nutrition actionable. Thank you. Jonathan. My my name is Jonathan Baylor. I'm the CEO of Sane Solution and the executive producer of the upcoming food documentary, Better. And we work to bring proven science, practical habits, and powerful love through nutrition and wellness practices to the masses. Thank you. Victor. Uh, so I'm Victor Panev. I'm a CEO and founder of Adamam. Uh, it's a data company focused on food and nutrition, and we do believe that food is the ultimate medicine and that if everybody eats well, they can live up to 120 without chronic condition mental illness. So we want to make it happen for everybody in the world. Excellent. And Sherry. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for having me. My name is Sherry Jung. I'm a a PhD molecular biologist by training, but also the founder and CEO of a company called GenoPallet. GenoPallet today is a, a nutrition intelligence company leveraging data from consumers' genomic information, but not limited to that. We want to be contextual. We want to be relevant and purpose-driven. So we provide um, 
uh, a very unique technology to approach uh, food as medicine through personalized nutrition and provide a very individualized and uh, informed food decisions and planning for everybody. Our vision is to help everybody to have better access. We think it's a right to optimal health through the best medicine you could ever have as, as a food and nutrition. Wonderful. Well, I'm definitely sensing lots of passion in this group, uh, lots of analytical minds around nutrition, lots of creative artistic minds. And so we're going to have a very fertile discussion. What I'd first like to do is perhaps talk about like zoom out of all of our respective businesses and talk about the lay of the land and in terms of the global milieu as it relates to food. What are some of the food related challenges that we've seen even over the past year? as it relates to potentially sustainability, accessibility of certain foods. I know that socioeconomic status as it relates to food has come up in terms of what can people be doing for their health. So let's just set the stage first. Can everybody get access to good, healthy food? And if not, why not? What are the issues? Who'd like to start? I'll start. <laughs> so I think that the quick answer is no. Um, not everybody has access to affordable and healthy food. Um, and this uh, comes not only from uh, historical yeah, uh, location of where people get their food, but also where, where, um, where maybe fresh fruit or vegetables are actually sold. And so accessibility to affordable uh, food is definitely not for everybody and should be for everybody. And so the, the dots between um, those who are already healthy and having easy, easier access, having access to technologies to maybe get those food is a lot different to those who live in food deserts uh, and have the highest uh, risk of chronic diseases um, that cannot access those affordable foods. And so there is a definitely, in terms of the macro link, uh, that we can see this disparity between food and health and how we need to use food to be able to help people to optimize their health in terms of prevention, but make, making sure that not only uh, people have the information that they need, but they also have the drive to change the behavior and then can go and buy the food that they actually need. And I think those are one of the biggest issues that we see over the last year is that food insecurity has increased, uh, but awareness of the power of food has soared. Excellent. And I definitely want to circle back to behavior change and get into that. So really wonderful. Anybody like to add to what Marietta is saying in terms of accessibility, food deserts? Yeah, I, I'd love to jump in because um, we tend to think a lot about the Western world and food deserts in, you know, in the US or the UK and whatnot. But if you zoom out as, as Diana said and, and look at India, Africa, <clears throat> Latin America, there is a lot of uh, not just food insecurity, but lack of good food. And a lot of it is just destruction of native lands, uh, agricultural practices, uh, modernization of agriculture, which really brings kind of depletion of the soil and so on and so forth. So, uh, and plus climate change impacts people. You know, the, the monsoon season in, in India has changed dramatically in the last 10, 10 years. So we're talking about billion people that are impacted there. <laughs> so what more than the Western world? So all we know, I think there are two trends that are happening. One is, you know, the, the poor world, so to speak, uh, has insecurity in the sense that not enough of the traditional food, the vegetables and fruit are, are provided um, in a way that normally it used to be. So people have less access to food, period. And then the Western world the, is the problem of abundance. Uh, you know, too much food, which tends to be processed and not good for you. And then, of course, there are the food deserts in the Western world, which is a, a tragedy uh, on its own right. So uh, I would actually be a little bit more pessimistic, <laughs> Marietta, and, and just say, uh, all, all we know, you know, the majority of population in the world is not getting the food they should be getting. Um, and it, it is a tragedy because there's no reason why not. I mean, we're producing food for 10 million people, for 10 uh, billion people, and we're throwing 40% out of it. Uh, and it, it, we can talk about food waste, but... Um, but there shouldn't be a good reason for that. And it, it's upon us to, to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Victor, that I appreciate 30, 000, That was the 30,000 food view. <laughs> yeah. Victor, I appreciate that you use the word should, like the food they should be getting, because I think there's also another dimension of this, which is 
there's an assumption even in the question, good and healthy food, that there is even agreement as to what good and healthy food is. Right. And I'm not sure there is that agreement. And that further complicates the issue. Um, and until we can really even define what the objective is when it comes to nutrition, right? And I, I understand that this is far more of a first world problem than it would be a third world problem. But until we can really define the, the goal, is the goal to get people sufficient calories? Is the goal to get people more fruits and vegetables? Is the goal to lower cholesterol levels? Like what is the actual goal? Because I think, I think a definition of what is good and healthy food is the fundamental basis of the conversation. Because if, if for example, the United States government thought good and healthy, healthy food was corn for everybody, they would subsidize agriculture. They would make there be an overabundance of corn and there is an overabundance of corn and we have an obesity epidemic in the United States. So what is good and healthy food is also a question that needs to be answered. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with, and I study metabolic syndrome obesity for over a decade. So totally understand um, the implication of what Jonathan was talking about. The malnutrition can go and come in many shapes and forms, right? It could be from completely deficiency to completely toxicity, almost too much, right? So it's, it's really needs to be redefined and defined on the personal level, right? That's why we, I think later, we probably will talk about personalized nutrition, why it's so important now with all the tools and systems and technologies that are readily, readily available to consumers and industry. Um, how can we drive uh, the su success through personalized nutrition so that we can deal with at the, those questions and problems at the individual level? Beautiful. Um, all of you added so many different facets to this, this question that I think uh, we could go down the rabbit hole on. And one of the things that Jonathan said that I think is remarkable is what do we think is medicine? When, when we think of food as medicine, you know, first of all, medicine kind of has that charged term. And then if we think of, well, what is healing about food? And all of you are aware of the personalized approach, and we're going to get into that as we go. Um, I want to talk for just a second about a common denominator, what I might see as a common denominator, and it might be plants, because all the different dietary groups in some way connect into plants, maybe not the same plants, and even if they're carnivores and strict carnivores, you're still getting plants through the animal. So I'm just curious for a second if we can just talk a little bit about the, because what I see trending in the consumer world and also in the regulatory world and in the supplement sphere is more about herbs. And if we look at India, Victor, you brought up India and we look at what happened at the, uh, the initial uh, onset of the pandemic was that the Ministry of Ayush had launched recommendations about Ayurvedic medicine and you need to go and do this golden milk and do this turmeric. And what we started to see was that cultures that were implementing more spices and more plant foods seem to have a, a connection with lower rates. But then you look at the Mediterranean diet and you see Italy, which did have a surge of, uh, of COVID as well. So I'm just curious, how do each of you feel about the accessibility of plants in the way of herbs and spices? Uh, because we're not just talking about fresh fruits and vegetables. We can move out of that box to Jonathan's point about you know, what is healthy. Maybe we need to think of a continuum. How do we see the future of plants as food as medicine? Do any of you have any strong views on that one? I, I would say, of course, the, the, the concept of using herbs or botanicals or roots um, is, is, is very good. I think the problem and the challenge comes, how do you make it practical? Because many people do not want to cook. Many people do not know how to combine. And then afterwards, they might learn about, you know, the beneficial components that are in these plants or, or, or herbs. And so I think there's a lot of education and convincing that goes with that. But it always comes back to, is it easy? Is it convenient? Are my kids going to cry? My own kids don't eat curry because I love curry, but my kids can't stand it. And so if it's too much of an effort and I'm going to get drama, I'm probably not going to do it. So the potential is there. We probably need to do a lot more awareness about 
how to make it simple, how to integrate it simply into the everyday foods and make it accessible. Because as soon as you say Ayurvedic, then I think, oh, I need to do a diploma. Uh, as soon as you, you know, we shouldn't make it so complicated and so high level that it doesn't relate to the everyday consumer because it does have a health benefit, but it's just not understandable. It's not communicated well enough, especially by bigger players who have the consumer, you know, attention, so to speak. It's a fascinating topic. And so I grew up in Asian culture, which is um, a culture with a long history and interactions and application with herbs, right? It's a, I would just have highest appreciation towards that. It has so much potential in there. And I think there's a, a, a really interesting concept. Uh, I think there's a startup called Bright Seed that's trying to really in, interrogate into all the phytochemicals, all the you know molecular uh, pathways inside of each plant and then they help to dissect it out for us. Um, but I think to Marinette's uh, point, I, which I, I resonate strongly, is there's a lot of cultural influence to to that person's literacy about, you know, there's a certain, lots of people don't even understand or recognize one herb from the other, right? One plant from the other, not even simple vegetable, you know, taxonomy. It's especially in the US, it's a, it takes a lot of education effort to um, help people to grow that kind of appreciation and eventually really applying that to their own benefits. I, th I think there is, uh, if there is the will, uh, it's not going to be solved by business alone. There's got to be something, you both mentioned education and, and whatnot. The government has to get involved and maybe regulate to some extent because it's supply and demand, right? People need to, um, to find it easy. So if your McDonald's came with, you know, uh, kale pesto that, uh, that had, you know, basil and pine nuts in it you know that will be a different story than uh, than not and so the the simple calculation i'll give you because we we work with recipes and we work with people you know having to cook all the time and it the, the most simple rule of thumb of why people choose a recipe or not a recipe number of ingredients right if, if it's 14 ingredients uh, i can do it if it's six maybe i can but usually it leaves away the spices which as you diana pointed out spices and herbs are incredibly important for the gut flora the microbiome uh, and just being able to have that flora diversity so that you can prevent all kinds of disease you know support immunity and so on and so forth so we've worked actually with some poor communities in the bronx uh, where you know they come back home from work really tired it's you know 8 p.m they gotta feed a family of four the easiest is happy meal from mcdonald's like a buck a, uh, you know a meal it's cheap it's easy it's fast well, that same community grew up with their moms and dads cooking rice and beans which takes a little bit longer, but it's about the same price. And so the question is, why not they not cooking rice and beans? And, and it's a little bit of kind of like losing that connection. So it's got to be a bit of the education, but also a little bit of making a push and maybe regulation and whatnot. And maybe McDonald's should start selling rice and beans. I don't know. Uh, but there is there's a little bit of that. And I know it's a bit uh, utopian, uh, but, but I think, you know, at least in the U.S., the current administration probably has enough of the will to, uh, to push in that direction. Uh, and and I, I see that happening in the marketplace already because demand is there, you know, everything is plant-based now. Um, and I, I have, you know, conflicting opinions about the processed plant-based foods that, that show up in, in forms of burgers, uh, but but definitely there's a lot more awareness. So I think we're we on the path. It, it, it feels like the way when uh, smoking is bad started you know, and it took about 20 to 30 years before, you know, people really stopped smoking. So I think it's going to take us another 20, 30 years before we start stop eating processed food. And that's, that's an optimistic view, but that's where I am. I think it's also important to highlight, at least in my opinion, that once you start having a conversation about medicine, it's, that's a little bit too late. Like the idea would be to not need medical intervention right? Like needing medicine sort of implies a disease state. And if we started out with the right foods as a preventative measure, there would be no need for a conversation around medicine. Because I, I think most of us, if not all of us would agree that what you put into your body, period, hard stop, is the single greatest determinant of whether or not 
you will experience disease and will need medicine at all. So again, getting really much more back to basics of, you know, we may or may not need to agree on which herbs or spices could be used to treat certain diseases or help with certain diseases. If we backed up and had foods which helped us to avoid those diseases in the first place. And I think there's a tremendous irony here that the proper foods, which again gets to the, kind of the heart of what we work to educate on, what are those proper foods, can be either the single greatest preventative source or preventative uh, way to prevent disease, or they could be the cause of rampant disease, which is what has happened in the United States. It's not ambiguous why one in three Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. It's not ambiguous why there was a hundred thousand percent increase in type two diabetes in the past hundred years. If you look anywhere where the Western diet is adopted, the, those modern diseases skyrocket. So I, I think sometimes people can become overwhelmed if we, if we jump into, I would call it the calculus of nutrition when there isn't even agreement on what one plus one equals in the nutrition arena. There's so much confusion and there's so much getting back to basics that I think needs to happen. Um, very well said, all of you. Uh, what I'm really taking away from all of this is keep it simple, back to basics, looking at cultural influences and going back to kind of like your, our roots. So what, you know, many of you have, um, you know, all of you in some way have done very sophisticated things with nutrition that go beyond the simple, right? So now we start, let's enter in to this whole conversation, personalization. So you've got public health messages about food and eating, and now we whittle on that continuum to, okay, but let's just focus on you. Let's talk about your gene variants. Let's talk about your environment. Let's talk about your toxic burden. What about the home that you live in? How are you sleeping? So are we adding a degree of complexity by now starting to bring in personalization? How is personalization of nutrition accessible to the masses? How do we even have that conversation when what I'm hearing from all of you, you're saying we haven't even done the foundational basics. So how do we start now talking about a very complex topic that is defined in many different ways of personalization? Jonathan, do you have any kind of like gut feel on this one since, uh, you know, yeah, I, mean, I, I think so, you, you yeah. are in the space, but you, you so, don't have a direct company that is really focused on personalization. So I'm curious for your broad brush. Yeah, in, in many ways, my company is the opposite of that. So, but, but what I will say is this, right? <laughs> the metaphor I would use is if you think about eye health. So if you have blurry vision, right? Everyone's going to need a personalized prescription of eyeglasses to see better. If, if I put on eyeglasses that make you see better, they might make my vision blurry. However, eyeglasses are the way to go. Like there's no disagreement that you know, getting some eyeglasses will help you to see better. So can personalization be helpful? Yes. I think personalization occurs around the edges. Like let's say it's the last, I would say it's the last 10%. It's there, it's valuable, it's extremely important but there is a 90% baseline that is shared, right? We're all humans, right? We might be men, we might be women, we might be young, we might be old. We are the same species. And I think sometimes, you know, people can start to lose sight of that. So, I mean, there is no human on the planet, to my knowledge, that when they eat, when glucose enters their bloodstream, that their insulin levels don't rise, right? I mean, we need to agree on the fundamental baseline biology we need to set up a framework where we can optimize for that. And then if you have the privilege of having access to personalization, high five rock and roll, but this is another, this is an unfortunate metaphor. It is icing, terrible metaphor for what we're talking about on the cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you said the other P word uh, as an adjunct to personalization, is it a privilege? Is it privileged medicine to personalize? And I want us to be really real about this. And especially because three out of the four of you are in the business of this. And I really want to know in my earnest attempt to understand, because I also talk about personalized nutrition, how do we make this accessible? Who else would like to chime in? I, I, I will start because I, I guess my, my background um, 
is in nutrition. So I started off in medical nutrition and then found my way to prevention, uh, you know, as I moved along my career. And so I think that traditionally the focus was very much on how can food be that medicine? I, I, I agree with Jonathan. I don't, I hate the term food is medicine because I think you need to, is food is food. But when it comes to, you know, you have a chronic disease and you want to use food to, you know, optimize your health or, you know, improve, uh, reduce your symptoms or your characteristics, then, then that's fine. However, I do feel that when you have a condition, then you can get access to a dietitian to get that advice and therefore it's a privilege. So if we can reimburse prevention as well as we do medical nutrition, we would already be on a good path. In terms of personalization, I think that personalization can be based on preferences and lifestyle to be able to give people the right information because yes, we are 90% equal or, or similar, but our environment is definitely not similar. And that is a determining factor. So we need to be able to understand where are people in their mental state, in this, in this stage of behavior change, in terms of their health literacy and food literacy, and how willing are they to implement that into their lifestyle. So, on that level, I think personalization does have a huge benefit because you tailor what you want to give, whether it's the technology, whether it's the information, whether it's the advice or the food uh, recipe that you give, it can be done. And if, it's, if that is the trigger that will help to make that person make those small nudges or that behavior change, then we are onto the right path. When we are looking at the market overall, yes, at the moment, uh, the omics level is a bit more niche, uh, but I, I, I think that as the prices come down and more people and it gets integrated and also uh, um, reimbursed and supplemented you know, with more partnerships, public-private partnerships, I do think that it will become accessible, but it cannot be without linking it to real food. It can't be linking it back to the community. It can't be linking it back right into the home. Without that, it will still stay niche. But I do think that personalization is the only way to go. And I think we have the studies that are that are coming up now that are showing that we do respond to food differently um, and that we need to understand what exactly those data points are, what are the different variables that we need to base on. And yes, it's still early, but the science is emerging and I'm therefore really positive and optimistic about, about the space. Each person has about 28,000 genes in our genome. And there's a lot of non-genomic factors also play a big role in gene expression. Imagine that, in, I'm talking about all of us, imagine that level of a complexity in to Marriott's uh, uh, you know, scenario laid out, interaction with the environmental cues that are constantly dynamically changing for you, right? Just imagine that the, the combination of those and millions of factors possibly out there driving your success and failure in your outcomes, whether you're happy or stressed or, you know, full or hungry, right? So I think that just wanna, you know, lay down some ground of that's the complexity we're talking about here. And that's number one. Number two is I believe personalization of health and nutrition doesn't have to be a privilege personalization of health and nutrition doesn't have to be costly. I think it's a matter of us, how much we want it, right? How much we want it so that uh, people can have a better access and more affordable and their right to the optimal health. Uh, for example, when the human genome sequencing, that's probably the most example of the high tech we're talking about, you know, implementing a uh, 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 a potentially costly, uh, inaccessible um, factor into personalization, uh, as example. Um, when we uh, started that project that cost us, global society, $2.7 billion to sequence that number one reference of a human genome, right? And then take about 11 years and 12 years and in 2002, 2003, it came out and the references is out and we started really uh, applying that to medicine, to pharmaceutical and eventually nutrition fitness today. And today people can pay 
um, you know, to general palate, for example, uh, I always compare, uh, 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 you cost you about a pair of good shoes, a Nike shoes, a couple hundred dollars. And, and there's actually other way we've been driving that price down to less than $50. So people can actually have an insight for the first time into their nutritional genomics to further drive to the core of the personalization pursuit. So, um, so just wanna provide that perspective. I think it's a, it's a long-term goal, uh, but I think it's already happening. We can all together help to make that future uh, near. Shuri, I, I really like what you're saying uh, because genetics and genomics, they're entering into it big time, whether we're looking at the food and its genetics and or we're looking at the person. And um, what I'm wondering about, and we can have this conversation after Victor weighs in on this question, but do we have enough people who understand and can translate what we're finding? And what about the role of epigenetics? Don't we find that we can modify that gene expression by food. So how much do we really bank on our genetics? Is that so important in the scheme of things? I'm wondering about how that's being questioned in this current day and age as we learn more about whether it's epigenetic tags or environment and um, everyday changes. And so um, I'm curious because, you know, within the world of nutrition professionals, I don't think that many of them understand or get the training or have the education to be able to translate something like you're speaking to into a real world approach, sitting alongside of a person and saying, hey, this is what you need to do because I saw this methylation imbalance. I saw this in your glutathione. I don't think that the link is, is firm. So it's intriguing to me because it's a hot topic right now. And um, so you're bringing up so many great topics uh, in that way. Victor, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, try to answer the previous Andy's question and kind of riff off of Sherry's uh, thoughts. Um, so first of all, I, I do agree that personalization is still kind of you know the one percent early adopter situation right now. If you have a lot of time, money, will, you can go and optimize yourself up to you know the max but that's not 99.9% .9 of the world. Um, so how do we democratize uh, personalization is the real question. And there's, there's a couple of things there. One is what uh, Sherry mentioned, it has to become affordable, right? First thing. But I think secondly, and more, more importantly, and that answers your question, Diana, it has to become seamless. You can't bother people with epigenetics and glutathione. I mean, they, they don't have the mind space to start understanding those terms and, and how that impact. All they want to know is it's noon. What should I eat for lunch? <laughs> that that's the bottom line. So the the technology to work well it should be seamless. So eating should be as easy as using the iPhone, right? Personalized eating should be as easy as using the iPhone. You, you turn on it, turn it on, you tap, and you know what's happening. So I think that what we need to do is kind of a stack of technologies. Yes, you gotta sequence your genome at least once in your lifetime, but maybe once a year. Definitely, you, you got to do an epigenetic test more often. Uh, you got to test your microbiome. You got to test your blood chemistry in real time. But that all has to be very seamless. They, people don't have to go buy devices. They don't have to uh, buy you know, test kits and, and so on and so forth. It has to become at some point really seamless that you know, just in your daily life, you know, if you uh, Recently, I read it like iPhone uh, that Apple has filed a, a patent that when you speak to your phone, they analyze your breath. And based on that, that can, they can tell, tell ketone levels. So this is seamless, right? If we can bring the same thing to genetics, if we can bring the same thing to microbiome testing with smart toilets and whatnot, then it becomes easier to kind of recommend to people. Then it'd be super easy to say, hey, you ate oatmeal for breakfast and knowing everything that's happening in your blood chemistry right now, this is what you should have for lunch, knowing where you are geographically. Now, it, it comes into kind of big brother territory. Like, I don't know if everybody wants to share everything about themselves, but 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 personalization should become that easy. And 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 just to, to make a little plug for Adam, I mean, we are trying to build that feature because it's all data, right? We got to know everything about everything in order to make it happen. And if you don't have the data, uh, you know, you can't do it. And that's kind of our goal. How would we invent this, the seamless future where personalization is cheap, easy, available to everyone? And then food becomes, you know, if not medicine, then the, the prevention. And, and we're just gonna open a bracket here, you know, in, in old India, like 5,000 years ago, 
people pay their doctors not to get sick. And if, the, if they got sick, the doctor returned the money. So I think that's the model of healthcare that should work. <laughs> so anyway, that, that, that was, those were my thoughts. I love it. Thank you. Um, one, so maybe this question is just a short question and it's kind of a thought provoker. Um, with all of this data, are we moving away from having people more in alignment and in touch with their bodies and more of an, a sense of intuitive eating? Like, have we lost our way because we've become so metrified and we've, um, you know, we have all these apps now and we, we monitor our steps. Have we gone into our head on nutrition a little too much? Do we need to come back into the body? Do we need to get a little bit more intuitive and artful and creative? So maybe just a quick response on this before we come to our final question. So what do you think? And I know I'm asking you almost to uh, not to commit blasphemy against your own <laughs> realm of data, but I really want us to see this in a right brain, a left brain type of way, right? We've been talking a lot about kind of the analytical side and, you know, but I want us to, are, are we losing our way with nutrition where we've overanalyzed it? The pendulum has swung m multiple times. What do you think? I, I'll jump here because I think it, like any technology, you can use it or abuse it. Like, you, you know, you can, you can create nuclear reaction and either create electricity or, or create a bomb. And it's the same thing with data. Is if, it's, if it creates awareness of what is happening in your body and that, that educates your intuition and you become more intu intuitively attuned to your body, then it served its purpose. But if you become a slave to that technology and you're constantly checking your data, then probably not. Then you're really going out in your head and, and the ultimate outcome is not gonna be good. So this is my two cents on, on that topic. I like it. I think data enrichment and surfacing is inevitable. It's just the way it is, right? And with that, I think uh, on the benefits side of um, food as a medicine, Food is a very intuitive thing, no matter what. Our body is a very intuitive thing. You know, with my, now I have some insight. I, I think I study many years of biology and so on. The more I study that, the more I realize we need to really form that internal connection with our ancestry, with the, this intuition body system that running, we have our own clock. Every cell has their own clocks. Our body has its overall clock, right? You need to really gain insight into that by understanding what's going on through science. Then we can form a better outcome through that connection with your intuition. That's that's my two cents. I'm glad you brought in the clock, the circadian <laughs> rhythm, because that is very intuitive, right? All we need to do is just look at the time of day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with both uh, Victor and Sherry. I do think that even even at this stage, we still need to personalize. So some people do need that level of, you know, like Victor says, that they need that awareness because they just don't know. <laughs> and so this is actually a, a way of education, but then there's the very important human element side that we can't lose focus of. And so we can't swing the pendulum from, you know, the way we did things to all the way to going digital. So I do think that depending on what the person's preference is and what that, you know, what, what would drive the behavior change would depend on what format you would change. And it could be a blended approach if that's what it is. If it's the younger generation tend to be more hands-off, they just want a chat function, whereas maybe the older ones do want an actual phone call, you know? So we need to, we need to be able to be very inclusive, but I don't think with where we are at the stage of technology that we, we can go back because now it's part of our lives. It can be an extension, but you need to be in control of how much that invades your life and how that actually adds value to your own health and your, uh, uh, and your nutrition um, from a health perspective. All right, beautiful. Thinking both the, the intuitive part and the data part. So from an intuition part, and this is more just to be, just to maybe frame the question a little bit differently. If you asked a smoker, what their intuition told them in terms of whether or not they should consume cigarettes, you would not necessarily have a positive health outcome. So we do live in an environment now where food is being engineered to be addictive. So I think that is a really important thing to keep in mind because our intuitive connection to food does exist. It's extremely powerful and it's been hijacked. So we have to keep that in mind because if you are, for example, 
addicted to opiates, listening to what your body says is not going to lead to positive health outcomes. So just something to think about. And then when it comes to data, um, not to be the contrarian of the group, but I will just beg a question, which is <clears throat> if more data is the solution to this problem, how were we all healthier and less diseased prior to all of this data existing? That is the question, isn't it? <laughs> but I do like what Mariette had said about how technology, and Sherry had alluded to this as well, where technology is now embedded into the fabric of our being. Most people, like Victor was saying, they have some kind of smartphone or technology. So can we go back? Can, is that even an option, right? So how do we make it our friend? And like Victor, you were saying, it's all about our, our use of it. But I, I love your questions, Jonathan. And I like how you think, because we do need to be looking at the blind spots. We do need to be raising those uh, kind of those, those points of discomfort or to really look under the hood a bit more. Yeah, I mean, to, All right, our I, final... Oh, Victor, okay. please. Just wanted to answer to Jonathan's question because it's like, you know, there is kind of this yearning to go back to before we got expelled from Eden and everything will be fine and, and whatnot. And can we turn back the clock? Uh, I don't think that's an option to answer Diana's question. I think, you know, uh, Pandora's box open and technology is out there. And only the only thing we can do is use technology to a better means to solve the problem rather than box it in and try to go back to, to a better world. That's that's kind of my view, but obviously there's different views on that. So. Yeah, all right. Um, such a rich discussion. Uh, this is very, it's very illuminating, right? To look at food as medicine within this context of our environment and the individual. So my final question to all of you is more of an action-packed question. So you're in the driver's seat, what, would be something to move the needle. And I'd like you to focus on like, if you had to put all of your metaphorical eggs in one basket, what's the one thing to start moving people into greater behavior change? I want us to come back to behavior change. How do we actually, because we're all talking about it in a variety of ways, whether through recipes or accessibility, what is the one thing that you would put your coins on to affect the change to come? How can we take food as medicine into the future and have people really implement? Sherry, did you want to start for this one? No, this is a tough one. Um, <laughs> we haven't figured out uh, quite, but I think I have some thoughts. Um, I think it's the come down to what is that one or multiple triggers of that person that can drive a better outcomes in behavior formation and changes and maintaining it. Right, um, I, I, I truly believe everybody has their own, you know, kind of a combination of code that will, you know, you press the button and will do something, right? And we all have that. It is it is a matter of, for example, if I want to, you know, get my CTO to access us more, is it going to bribe his wife to invite him more to the to the healthy walk or? you know, or I don't know, drink more beer with him to motivate him if I can, you know, do something about that. It's just because uh, we were having this conversation, sorry, if you think it's very specific. Um, I, I think a different person will be triggered in a different way, but if we find that, and I think it's a matter of doing it, uh, we will have actually making a lot of progress. Okay. So to understand the triggers, the drivers, yeah, for me, I, I would say it's food literacy. And I think it's because um, it's very well documented that we eat the same five meals over and over and over again. So I think people's awareness of diversity of foods and really just say, okay, let's start off with the food that you are already having, already cooking, and how can we use Victor's platform to make it just a little bit healthier. How can we just start with where you are at and say, well, you can do it this way, but you can increase the fiber in this way. And you can, you know, lower the fat content in this way. And you can, you know, take it tomorrow for your lunch by including a salad in this way. And we really need to just make people more 
food literate and helping them to understand that a more varied diet will actually lead to much better health in very, very simple ways. Okay, getting out of food ruts, food diversity. That it's such a, a, a huge topic right now for sure. And lots of influence on the gut microbiome and immune resilience too. Jonathan, how about for you? What would be your one thing to move the needle? I think uh, Victor, or maybe one of the other panelists brought up earlier the smoking and how we've actually seen the rates of smoking decrease. And I, I really do wanna highlight this, this can seem like an unsolvable problem, but it's not as proven by what's happened with smoking. Like, I don't think we really recognize how big of a deal reducing the rates of smoking has been. I mean, remember that cigarette lighters were standard in automobiles far before seatbelts were required in automobiles. Like imagine if we had soda dispensers built into cars. I mean, cigarettes were the cornerstone of culture and we successfully through frankly telling the truth about what was happening in terms of people hijacking our free will and manipulating us were able to turn the tide against that. And I think the data is becoming very clear that companies that manufacture food-like products are taking on the same practices and are frankly, sometimes the exact same companies as the companies that manufacture cigarettes. So if we could help just to educate people on what is happening, not in terms of like, you know, uh, the soil degradation. I mean, those are all very important things, but we have a proven blueprint on how to take the third most addictive substance in the world and to get an entire culture to almost stigmatize it, not only to stop engaging in it, but almost to stigmatize it. How can we take that as a blueprint and apply that to look, there may be some disagreement about certain things, like processed sugar is pretty bad for you, right? Refined flour is pretty bad for you. I, there's not too many people that disagree with that. So how do we learn from what we did there? Do that when it comes to sugar, for example, would be my hope. Yes. Hey, well, John, Jonathan stole my argument, but I'm just going to uh, add on to it. I think that the, the lesson that was learned from the changing the tide on smoking was that it was a public-private partnership. And you know, all the companies are gonna provide the solutions, but there's gonna be a concerted effort from government policies and education. Uh, and you know, lawsuits to be filed for companies that don't comply. And, 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 and I think the big bad food companies are actually learning from that experience. A lot of them are changing in the direction of healthy food. They re recognize that they have a good lucrative alternative by selling healthy food. So I think it's actually gonna be less of a fight than smoking. Um, and uh, so that, that's one thing. The other thing, which is a little bit more kind of out there as a solution, I think behavior change is, comes down to changing your mind and changing your mind is consciousness hacking. And there's a lot of new tools out there that can change your mind, uh, you know, by changing your consciousness uh, in, you know, psychedelics, breath work, uh, embodiment. So anything that kind of recognizes the mind-body connection, um, and connection with spirit. And I know it's a little bit, ooh, maybe, but that's, that's the reality. If we can deploy those technologies, we can change for millions and billions of people, their minds in real time. And then, you know, once you, the, the, the slates clipped, uh, wiped clean, you know, hey, let's serve them good food and, and see where they go. They, what, what their bodies tell them intuitively to eat, so. Victor, thank you for taking us back out into the macro because that truly is, uh, I do think, a forefront, right? We get so focused on the physical body and we're not looking at the mental health space, the mind, how we think, our mood. And we do know that food can change all of those things. The science is becoming replete with research articles on that. So thank you all. This has been a very robust discussion and uh, three things that I've learned from all of you and I've been taking little notes here. Um, one is that uh, food is more than medicine. Food is also prevention. It's a lot of things, actually. It's information, it's energy, it's, social, it's how we socialize, um, but it's more than just medicine. So that's my number one. Number two is uh, all of you are speaking to behavior change and choice. 
and how important that is. So Jonathan, what you were saying about food companies and smoking, like where does it start? It starts with the individual, right? We vote with our fork. We vote with our purchase at the grocery store and every purchase, every conversation, the fact that we're all doing this, this is along that continuum of choice. And then I would say the third thing that I've learned from all of you is that sense of awareness, consciousness. Um, Jonathan, you know, uh, again, you brought up this whole thing about being the, the contrarian, kind of looking at that things that aren't always easily looked at, as much as looking forward in the future with Sherry and Mariette um, and, and Victor, you know, with, with technology, kind of visioning that out, but not losing sight of, of where we are, having that awareness. So thank you all, uh, Food is Medicine panel, for our, our summit here. So I want to thank you all. Thank, thank you for you. the questions and discussion. Well, good luck to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that they'll just end the recording when uh, over here. So thank you. Good to meet you. Uh, Victor, I knew. I didn't know uh, the other three of you. So nice to connect. Nice to meet you. Very good <laughs> organic uh, session. Bravo. <laughs> All of you were so like, you, you just kind of spring, you just went from the other speaker. It was beautifully transitioned. So thank you. Well, have a well, good rest of your day, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.